Welcome to K-Drama School. I'm your host, Grace Jung, and class is now in session. So I just posted all of my show dates on my website at hj.com. So I will be at Rooftop Comedy Show at Grand Central Market at 8 p.m. on October 27th. And on October 14th, I will be at Stax Comedy Show, which is going to be at Sideshow Books in Los Angeles at 6 p.m. Monday, the 11th, October 11th, I'm going to be on a Zoom comedy show that's at 5 p.m. I'll post details on that very soon on my website. I was interviewed a couple of times this past week by journalists about the show Squid Game. Uh, I guess they were coming to me because I specialize in Korean television studies and I have a PhD and all of that. But one of the journalists wanted to talk about the issues around subtitle translations. And I was just kind of like, I mean, first of all, I don't follow any of these Twitter battles that people engage in online. Uh, secondly, um, who cares? I mean, the people who seem to care about the accuracy or inaccuracy, as if that's even possible with language, uh, the so-called accuracy and inaccuracy of the translations of the subtitles, they were mostly people who speak Korean, right? It's not the non-English speakers who are complaining about these translations. It's the It's the people who speak Korean. So it's like, if you speak Korean, why are you even watching it with subtitles in the first place? I mean, you understand what the hell is going on. Are you just concerned that people around you are not going to get the exact same experience as you? I mean, that is impossible, okay? You're all different bodies with different minds and different experiences. Nobody's going to engage with the text in the exact same way. I translated two books from Korean into English. One is a short story. Well, it's a novella written by Yi Chung-jun called Poleyagi, which I translated as uh, The Abject. And that is uh, published and it is somewhere online. You can find it. And the other uh, translation that I did is on Kim Dong-in's selected works of short stories, which I entitled Sweet Potato. But his book of short stories was entitled Kamja after his short story Kamja which in North Korean dialect would be sweet potato, but in South Korean dialect, it would just be potato, right? There are so many nuances that go into translation, and it has to do with what the translator and interpreter knows, okay? It has to do with what, what kinds of cultural things, historical events, uh, sociological, political, economic context that the translator knows, okay? And the thing about language is, Interpretation and translation is very subjective, depending on who is doing that work. So the decisions that they make, they will not satisfy every single person on earth. I mean, that is impossible. And I told this to the journalist in Canada who was interviewing me about this article, right? I mean, he was trying to engage me in this Twitter fight as if I gave a shit. I don't. I really don't care what the translation is like, whether I agree with it or disagree with it. That's the translator's work. I have no say in that matter. 
But I will say this, given Netflix's high demand of Korean content, I do wonder what the compensation and work environment is like for these translators. I mean, are they under high duress? Are they getting enough rest? Do they have enough time to provide accurate translations, right? What I find disturbing is that people are shitting on the translators themselves when what they should be shitting on is the actual system of Netflix and the high demands and impossible work expectations that Netflix imposes on Korean translators, right? Translation is not easy work. It's very, very difficult. When I was translating uh, the novella, um, The Object, it took me a little over a year. When I was translating the book of short stories by Kim Dong-in, that took me over a year. Guggenheim wanted to hire me as a translator for a book and they wanted to, they wanted me to do it in six months. And I said, no, because that is insane. I'm not gonna bang out a translation in six months. You need time to let language settle in. You need time to do research. You need time to figure out whether or not you agree with what you just put down. And without that time, Without that processing, you're not going to get good translation. I personally still don't understand why these people who speak Korean are so angry about the subtitles and translation. Really, I, I just don't. If it's a matter of subtitles or closed captioning for uh, people with hearing disabilities, I mean, that's a whole nother matter. But that's an issue that linguists and people who do disabilities should handle. I mean, that's their discourse, right? Something that they need to figure out among people with disabilities and among linguists. But if you are just a fan and you speak Korean and understand Korean and you have issue with, issues with these translations, I it's like, don't you have something else to pick a fight with? I mean, don't you think that this is a good enough show that you enjoyed? I mean, why do you have to go and dampen the mood by bringing up your negativity? I mean, I find that really annoying. I think uh, Squid Game needs a little bit more discussion, so I'm going to be talking about it some more today in my uh, textual analysis of the show. Um, and then the meat of this uh, podcast episode will be a discussion with Dr. Sukyung Kim, who is a theater studies, critical studies professor at UCLA, and she was also my mentor and committee member on my doctoral dissertation. And even though I normally put the flashcard questions up front, I'm going to backload it this time. So that is going to be with Tobias Hauser, very, very funny comedian. So let's talk about Squid Game a little bit more. There are a few things that I didn't get to touch upon in episode 39, so I'll talk about it here and now. So there's this monologue that actor Shin Gu uh, gives in the last episode of a 2004 Korean drama called Miss Kim's Million Dollar Quest, or Paramanjang Miss Kim. And the protagonists are Kim Hyunju, actress Kim Hyunju, and actor Ji Jin Hee. And you've all seen actor Ji Jin Hee in Daejanggum, aka Jewel in the Palace. Uh, he's the the hot guy that Daejanggum starts dating. <laughs> and uh, Shin Gu on this program plays the landlord Ajashi. Okay, and at the end of this series, he gives this long monologue where he says, "If you want to make money." Go to bed every single night in exhaustion as your bones ache. Then you will make money. That's what he says. 
And this is the mythology of capitalism that is handed out to lower and middle class individuals. There's this false belief that die hard working will lead to capital gain and success. And if you're Korean, you definitely heard this shit. All right. Koreans probably work three times as hard as anybody I know. They do it because they think if they don't, nothing will work out. They think suffering will equal some kind of result. So they just always want to go and suffer no matter what. Okay, but here's the truth. This is something I figured out just in my life when I look back on things retrospectively and as I'm living my life on a day to day present day. And now uh, I wish I cut myself more slack when I was younger. Okay, and I took everything a little bit too seriously. Um, I feel like if I had been a little bit more lax and took everything as simple and easy and, you know, comfortable, then I would have had the exact same life that I have today with less wrinkles and less stress. If you want to find joy in life, you should just work less, stress less, live more, satisfy yourself more, find greater comfort, seek joy, prioritize all of these things above all else, then you will attain happiness, okay? Capitalism has this false illusion and they, they keep dictating the same nonsensical message over and over again through weird advertisements and false hopes. Like if you buy this, you will be happier. Capitalism keeps saying, if you have more money, you'll be happier because you'll be able to afford these things that corporations are trying to sell you. And I'm here to tell you right now that none of that is true. You can skip that part and just get to the happiness and joy and comfort. Those things are attainable without money because it's a state of mind and emotion. And you can attain these things without a single cent. I think before anybody starts working, they really should figure out what it is that brings them the greatest satisfaction, okay? Once you have that clarity and you pursue it, happiness will be there. When I quit my office job in New York in acquisitions and film distribution, I moved to Los Angeles for grad school and to work in the entertainment industry. And I remember waking up when I was living in LA, okay? I remember waking up one morning at 10 a.m., walking to a cafe by 11 a.m., browsing some clothes at a vintage store around 3 p.m., then grocery shopping and getting home around 5 p.m. I made dinner. I followed it up by doing some reading and writing, and then I watched some TV, and then I went to bed, okay? I mean, think about that chill-ass day. I, I felt so much happiness and joy in that one day, and I continued to live that kind of day on a day-to-day -day basis. And I did not feel that kind of comfort and joy in all the years that I had been working at that fucking office in New York, where it was supposedly a coveted job with a coveted status, right? Nowadays, I don't have an income, all right? My monthly allowance is very limited. What we actually need in order to feel comfort, joy, and safety are very minimal. We don't need an extra ottoman for the couch to feel complete. We don't need a new fucking curtain. We don't need another TV for the guest room. We don't need another dog. We don't need another kid. We don't need another spouse in order to be happy. We have to learn how to say that what I have is enough because I am enough. The moment we come to terms with this, we can find freedom and joy in everything and everyone. People rarely ask me this, even though I have a PhD in film and television. But when they do ask me, what is your favorite movie? I tell them it's The Big Lebowski. You know why? Because the dude abides. That's why. And he's my philosophy in life, okay? If you want to know the meaning of life, go see The Big Lebowski. And accept it when I say stop trying so hard because right now, in this moment, you're perfect and that is enough. If there are any takeaways from the show Squid Game, it's that message, all right? I'm extracting and putting that on a silver plate for you. Don't try so hard. Desire creates suffering. Happiness is attainable without money. Whenever I meet Korean studies 
professors at conferences who study film, they always give me this bullshit line. Oh, I don't watch TV. I'm like, bitch, you do watch TV. You just don't want to consider the shows you watch as TV. Okay. Any show you find on HBO, FX, and Showtime, they're all TV. Okay. Mad Men is TV. Okay, bitch. Handmaid's Tale is TV. All right. And Squid Game on Netflix is absolutely television. And like I said, I already see Emmys and Golden Globe nominations, if not wins for this show. They are coming. All right. I can't get enough of Squid Game. Honestly, I'm watching this show for the second time this week, and I have a lot more thoughts on it. But this conversation with Dr. Kim is such a treat, not only for me, but also for you. All right. So here are a few things that I realized while I was talking to Dr. Kim that I want to elaborate on some more right now. The reason why Korean dramas are so good is because the creators strive for the impossible, which is satisfying other Koreans. All right. Any Korean who's lived with Korean parents know this. It's like satisfying them is uh, an impossibility. All right. Korean fans and critics are like the inexhaustible helicopter Korean parent whose expectations go way beyond what is humanly possible. You can see this already in how many Koreans dislike Squid Game despite its massive international success. You can also see this in how many Korean Americans dislike Squid Game because of their issues with the translation. I wrote an entire doctoral dissertation, which is now going to be my first academic book on Korean TV variety shows. Uh, Korean TV variety shows, aka Yenung, they are game shows and reality shows. All right, so things like Superman, um, The Return of the Superman, that is a Korean variety reality show uh infinite challenge two days one night these are all variety shows that i look at so in that book i basically say that variety shows are a parody of the reward obsessed capitalist society in which south korea and the globe are living off of these comedians on korean variety shows go through hell and back fight to the teeth to win the most ridiculous prizes like a banana or a fucking choco pie, okay? They do all kinds of insane things, like backstab one another, break their own bones, play mind games on one another, okay? So Squid Game essentially is just mirroring what Korean variety shows have already done and continue to do, all right? So if you want to see a quintessential example of Korean variety shows and their sadism, which are very, very funny, look up clips of Infinite Challenge on YouTube via NBC's channel. Someone tweeted at me that they think Squid Game is racist because of the way that they treated the Pakistani character, Ali. Let me clarify and say that there are lots of racists in South Korea who mistreat migrant workers from South Asia, just like there are many racists in the United States who mistreat migrant workers from all over Asia, Latin America, and Africa. All right. In fact, North America and Europe enslaved, enslaved an entire race. Do you remember this? And they committed genocide to take land that didn't belong to them, right? I don't think the show itself is racist. All right, because of how they treated Ali's character. The way that Ali dies is such a crucial part of the show as a substantial critique of South Korean CEOs who mistreat and swindle migrant workers from South Asia, North Korea, parts of China. Okay, like that happens all the time. So I wouldn't say the show is racist per se. I would just say that there are racists who the show is critiquing. I personally uh, didn't watch this show with subtitles on, so I don't know how the English subtitles handle this, but Ali keeps addressing Sangwoo as 사장님, right? 사장님 means boss or CEO. It loosely translates to boss. It's the title and expression used when addressing the owner of an establishment. So Sangwoo keeps telling Ali not to call him that because Ali doesn't technically work for Sangwoo, right? So it's an inappropriate way to address him. In that liminal space, on that island where they're all competing in games 
everybody, regardless of their creed or education or gender or background, are on equal status. They're on the same plane level, right? In episode two, Sangwoo gives Ali some cash so that Ali can take the bus back home. And Ali thanks him and calls Sangwoo 사장님. But what happens in episode six? Sangwoo tricks Ali with a bag of rocks, wastes his time by making him wander around the neighborhood for a completely fake plan, and swindles him out of all of his marbles. It's exactly what happened to Ali in his actual lived life in Korea as a factory worker. Ali's real 사장님 did him dirty in the exact same way by not paying him and lying to his face. I'll share something else here. My mother was a farm girl in Hapcheon in Gyeongsangnam-do in South Korea. And when she was 14, she was sent away to the city of Masan, where she had to work at a factory, as a factory girl. And she told me that the bosses, the 사장님들, that she had to encounter back then were dirty and tricky bastards. She said that they all learned how to be a boss in a factory, in an industrial environment, because they studied in the United States. So my mother's theory is that these economically privileged Koreans went to the U.S., learned the management systems in America, and brought that all back to Korea where they took advantage of their laborers in the exact same way. I'm not bringing this up for blame-shifting reasons. I'm bringing this up because this is just the nature of capitalist economies and neoliberal structures. Money is a highly dehumanizing element, and yet we are addicted to it, just like we are addicted to sugar, alcohol, fat, tobacco, and other substances that are slowly killing us. We know that money is bad for us, but we can't stop consuming because no one is willing to climb off the hamster wheel. Squid Game has a definite critique of neocolonialism here as well. How American Empire has a hold over South Korea, which has now reached sub-empire status over developing nations such as Pakistan, India, the Philippines, Vietnam, parts of China, North Korea, and some Eastern European countries. Neocolonialism simply means control over a nation without government takeover. All right, So you maintain sovereignty, but in its economic and social, cultural ways, there are infiltrations where there is a higher status nation controlling a lower status nation, okay? Usually a richer country taking hold over a, a poorer country. So take a look at the history of bananas in the United States, all right? You'll see neocolonialism there. Take a look at the relationship between Mexico and the U.S. You'll see neocolonialism there. Even look at South Korea and America. Without America's political and economic support, South Korea would not have reached the economic stability that it has today. Even still, there are many social ailments as a result of this neocoloniality, as well as a neoliberalism. And Hwang Dong-yuk is missing a mouth full of teeth because Netflix's demands. All right. That's one example of neocolonialism at work. Think about the voyeurs of this game. Okay. The voyeurs of this game, the ones wearing those big, gold, colorful, crystallized, amazing animal face masks, right? They're these wealthy white men. And then you have one man from China. They represent nations with the most billionaires in the world. To me, billionaires aren't even people anymore. They're just creatures of capitalism. They're desensitized to humanity because money requires a lot of hyper-rationalizing of unspeakable acts against other human beings. We know this because we watch the show. Everybody's wearing a mask, right? When you see that guy who's like, who, what do you call it? Is he the undertaker when he's chopping people's heads off at the guillotine? He's wearing a mask, right? It's to 
hide his human face, to hide his eyes, all right? Our groveling in society while toiling away to make money, it's all for the elite to watch and laugh at, all right? We're a mere spectacle to the 1%. We're their entertainment. Look at all the sad memoirs and documentaries that people from sad circumstances, oftentimes marginalized situations come from, right? The civilizations that National Geographic focuses on, these images and stories are marketed towards white people, people with money, people who live in developed nations, the readers of the New York Times, the readers of the New Yorker magazine. If everybody had equality and happiness, white elites would have no entertainment, no drama, no tension, no amusement, just their own stale, boring lives with their pretty little plates and their tea sets and whatever the fuck. As we learn from Squid Game, people of the upper echelons are bored as hell. They need to feel again by watching others kill one another or put their lives on the line for something as ridiculous as paper that we call money. Something we believe to be the answer to our miseries and desperations. But we gotta realize, and this onus falls on Hwang Dong-yuk, the showrunner as well, we can say no. We always have a choice. We don't need to follow what the system dictates. We can dissent. And I always say dissent. In dissent, you'll find freedom. Today's guest is Dr. Sukyung Kim. She's an esteemed professor of theater, performing arts, and Korean studies. She's currently the head of theater department at UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television. She specializes in Slavic languages and culture, North Korean studies, and K-pop. And she's a very prolific writer and the author of several amazing books, including Elusive Utopia, DMZ Crossing, and K-pop Live. She has two more books on their way. One is on millennials in North Korea, currently under contract at Stanford University Press. And there's an edited anthology on K-pop that is currently under contract at Cambridge University Press. And when it comes to K-pop, Dr. Kim has been the go-to person for a lot of media outlets, including CNN, NBC, NPR, and Quartz. And I love Dr. Kim because she's so down with pop culture. You know, she watches all of it. She watches all the fun stuff and she's happy to talk about it. Dr. Kim brings these big, looming, profound theories to the texts that she examines, and they become way more rich and meaningful because of her perspective. And we're blessed to have her guidance to see our culture in a whole new way. Without further ado, let's talk to Dr. Sukyung Kim. Are you okay? You've been good? I've been pretty good, yeah. Um, you know, after I finished my PhD, uh, I, I started getting... Uh, full body massages once a month since may um and uh she was like after i finished my phd she was like your body is totally different i was like yeah because it's literally a weight off my shoulders yeah, right. you know yeah yeah and, uh, it has a physical toll on you but you zip through it i mean i mean yeah. i haven't student who wrote it as like quickly as you did with such substantial content so oh really yeah. Wow. Thanks. I think it's just um, like I was so committed to finishing and mm -hmm. I, I was just like, I'm going to write every single day. Even if I'm not writing something new, I'm going to go in and change something or read it at the very least so that I'm yeah. not afraid of it. You know, I think that's yeah, like the writing yeah. writer's block a lot of grad students have is like they're afraid of sitting down in front of it. So I was like, I'm just going to keep encountering it so I'm not afraid of it. And I think that worked. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I, I, I keep saying you don't need inspiration. It's like, you know, going to grocery store, opening up your cash register and working there. It's just like that. There's like mechanics and rhythm to it. So just do it every day. So 
There you go. You finished. I agree. Yeah, I think that's really like the best advice to give people who are writers when they're facing a writer's block. It's like, whatever you're doing, you're still writing because you're still thinking and you're still processing and you're experiencing. And I think that's so important that we and we forget that, right? But are you teaching at the moment? Luckily, I'm not. Uh, I'm glad that I'm not teaching because, um, you know, there's a lot to do in the aftermath of my brother's death. I'm the executor oh of state, so I have to clean up all his stuff, and that requires some travel. So it's not like I can just go and be sad and mourn his death. There's, like, actual work to do, so hmm. uh, luckily I'm not teaching. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Is this your older brother or younger? He's younger, so it was really unexpected. I mean, yeah. total surprise. So, yeah, this is what like yeah. life throws at you. <laughs> um, okay. Well, it it kind of makes sense that you're an older sister. Are you the oldest? No, I'm the second. Um, so my brother was only forty-five, which is really young mm. for now. I mean, that's yeah. how old. Romans were, you know, that was the like average Roman lifespan, and we're talking about two thousand years ago. So, right, Shock. right, right. I'm so sorry. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's like kind of it's on my mind, but um, Squid uh -huh. Game helped me snap out of it because it's just so. <laughs> Isn't it an amazing show? It's oh so my good. god, I I love the humor. I mean, people don't mention humor too much, but there's it's black comedy, dark, yeah comic moments that just like made me chuckle <laughs> i agree you know that scene when he gives his daughter the present and she opens it oh. and it's a gun <laughs> oh i know i know <laughs> that element of surprise and i mean it's kind of like uh forecasting all these you know present box that turns into coffin and yeah. it's like so smart i i love the set design the visuals were just everything right on. the yeah. music the right. the cast it was like just so good like all the details and you know this guy like Huang dong has been thinking about this show for over 10 years and that's really the indicator of why it's a good show he thought about every minute detail because he had the time to do it right, right. and now Netflix being Hollywood, being America, they're like, okay, we're season two. When are you going to? And this guy, he was like, he lost like six teeth because of the stress and it took such a toll on him. And, and now they're just like immediately season two, when's it going to come out? And he, this director, he can't do the very thing that he critiques, which is say no to money. Just say <laughs> no to success and fame take care of your health and and work on your creativity and give it time. He can't say no. He can't do the very thing that he's criticizing in his own show. And he's like, I already have some ideas for season two. I'm like, bro, it is never, ever, ever going to be as good as season one because you had 10 years to think about it, right? Exactly. I mean, he would need to bring Bong Juno, Park chan to really kind of bring up season two to the level of season one. And... I mean, you talked about money, Grace, but I'm not sure how much money he made because, you know, the, the production cost of the whole entire uh, season one is somewhat equivalent to production cost of one episode of Crown, which is the most expensive show. So, I mean, we hear a lot about, you know, cost-effective Asian labor. 
Um, mm-hmm. So um, you just really wonder what 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 was his take, you know, um, away by mm-hmm. going through so much. I mean, I think Netflix K drama partnership could be win win situation, but mm-hmm. you also think about this kind of more balanced view of what other actors are being paid, you know, whether the staff is really uh, having reasonable condition to work in. I mean, all those things are kind of on my mind as well. I think that's really important because when I was reading about shows like Kingdom, for instance, you know, like people died on that set. You know what right? I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, shows are not worth dying for, especially if you're not the director. If you're the director and you die for your movie or show, go, by all means, go ahead, you know, but... These are people whose names don't even get recognition. And um, yeah, the labor conditions, I mean, are they able to catch up to the expectations and the demands of Netflix and the the globe, right? I think that's really important and it goes overlooked. Yeah. But I do know that um, they have backend, they have backend royalties for streaming. Like friends of mine who are actors in Hollywood, they do get um, for each streaming, like each time that their movie or show gets streamed, they do get some royalties. So I know that they're, they do have back-end deals, but I don't know the details of it. And it might right. be different with yeah. Korean productions. Right. I, I mean, I don't know the details of what this contract looks like, but, um, you know, I uh, read one of the interviews given by uh, Hong dong the director mm. of uh, Squid Game, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like he will get extra perks for, you know, hitting number one chart in almost every country um, where yep. Netflix available so i don't think the financial game would have been really yeah. um yeah kind of measuring to the global success of the show as of actually this is why i wanted to talk to you because i remember when i was in your class which i loved i loved the seminar that i took with you it was i was like this is this was such a great opportunity but you re- i remember what the first question you asked i think day one of the seminar you were like how do you measure popularity without numbers you're putting me on spot. <laughs> no. I, I remember you asking me that. You asked the whole class that. And we were just like, yeah, how? But that question applies to this current situation, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's what the public defines it to be. I don't mm-hmm. think there is one set answer to this. Um, yeah. I think the answer is like one size fits nobody. And uh, right. I think the answer has to be really situational, mm-hmm. contextual. I mean, when was this catching fire under what context? And right. I mean, for me, um, it's not just the number of countries that it landed on number one chart or, you know, how much media is talking about it. But I mean, for me, it was truly successful and powerful because it spoke so viscerally to pandemic, post-pandemic situation, um, especially mm. in terms of, you know, the, the visceral wealth gap um, and just dire situation that many people are faced with, especially after pandemic or still under pandemic. And mm-hmm. I think it resonates universally mm-hmm. uh, while not really losing kind of this quirky directorial kind of, you know, um, color to it. And I, I, I agree with you that, I mean, there was so much time <laughs> that went into thinking about all these minute detail, which created a whole universe. And, mm-hmm. you know, as, as a kind of like specialist in drama, you know, I always kind of look into whether the rules of this world is convincing, no matter how 
uh, detached they might be from the actual world we live in. I mean, the rules of the game are improbable, right? I mean, that, something like that just perhaps cannot happen legally in, in our world. But we subscribe to it. We're immediately empathizing and drawn into it. So he created this whole universe where these like weird rules of the world exist, but we subscribe to them. And the ability to convince your viewers right on, I think yeah. is a measure of success for me. Yeah. yeah. And it's not really different from our current world, is it? Think about how many, how many situations we're put in daily in our society, a capitalist society, a neoliberal economy, where we don't say no when we're being sexually assaulted or harassed at work because we have a bunch of debt and we need this job and we're doing, we're willing to do anything it takes right? We're putting our bodies and our minds in precarious situations daily when we work for anybody, right? I mean, <laughs> that is, is like embedded everywhere. It's conditioned physically, mentally, emotionally. We feel it all the time. And, you know, when those people leave the games, they leave that island, they leave that liminal space and return to their quote unquote reality, and they realize, oh, that's hell. And they just go back willingly on their own accord because they realize, well, okay, I mean, might as well be this, you know, risk it all. I mean, that moment shows like uh, what choice is a true choice. I mean, it's all false choice, right? I mean, living in neoliberal capitalist society, we're all constantly making false choices um, yes. because the choice you're given is, do you want this brand of cereal or this brand of cereal? But it's exactly. nevertheless cereal. Um, exactly. So, in a way, I think, um, you know, what's really harrowing about the situation that you just mentioned is, um, yes, we put ourselves in precarious conditions to, to, to be compliant so that we can get our paycheck, be employed, make it in this world. But uh, what's really harrowing about this particular show is that it turns into somebody's entertainment, right? So, mm -hmm. somebody's matter of life choice mm -hmm. of what to do given yeah. the, the evil spread of choices they get. It's somebody's pure entertainment. And I think it's a very, very strong satire on the entertainment industry itself. Entertainment industry itself, but also global hierarchy. Also, Absolutely. you know, I mean, there is this critique, I mean, this analysis of racialized hierarchy, um, global hierarchy, right? Like, I mean, it's all white men. Hello? You have one Chinese guy. <laughs> Because there are a lot of billionaires in China. Oh, right? That moment was so funny when he said when he started reciting Du Fu's. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought that was like so brilliant. Like, how does this lofty classical poem fit into this? It was just brilliant. <laughs> but somehow it does. It. I mean, that's. But that even that moment is an indicator of like we have a choice when it comes to what kind of reality we wish to live, we wish to choose. You know, like. <laughs> In that moment, it's there's this. It's a very insidious and weird moment, but like, that's a very minor clue into telling everybody. Even though we live in this society where they give us those false choices, as in a yeah. consumer society, right? We have a choice to exist in a different kind of reality, mentally and emotionally, right? Which is where affective, you know, kinds of theories come in. Like, I don't know my situation currently 
even your situation currently i mean you're mourning a loss but you know you're like but i have things to do i have to go and pack these things away and i have to take care of my kids and i have to tend to my husband and i have to tend to my school administrative duties blah 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 right I mean, that's a choice rather than sitting and mourning and doing whatever. Like me, I graduated in June, no jobs. I apply to jobs twice a week, every single week. I'm on unemployment, but pandemic stipend cut out, cut half of it out. So really, it's really sucking. I'm on food stamps. Even food stamps, they're like, you're making too much money on unemployment. I'm like, you mean barely making my rent? They're like, no, that's too much money. So food stamps, we give you $20. I'm like, okay, great. And there are just there's just nothing but it's like i have a lot to do every day you know i mean thankfully i mean you're sending me stuff you know like there, these opportunities and stuff and i i write back and i say okay like maybe this is an opportunity but like i'm always writing i'm always working i'm always doing on working on some kind of project because i say to myself what is the point of feeling anxious if i know it's gonna work out like this project's gonna work out, so why should I feel like anxious and nervous about money right now? That's such a useless way to think and feel at this moment. It's not gonna be productive to the work that I'm doing, which I'm doing because I believe in it, because I know it's gonna work out. So that's a kind of reality I'm choosing, right? And I'm not saying that the neoliberal kind of systems and infrastructures are not in place. We have to acknowledge it. That is one reality but there are multiple realities that coexist at all times aren't there yeah um and i think this really brings me back to the kind of more, most fundamental um question that one can raise in life and it's it's how do we live our lives and um are we are we going to go with the route of happiness which comes from kind of, you know, turning a blind eye to these structural failures and um, giving up your choice, true choice, and going with the flow. There is certain comfort and stability that comes with it. Or are you going to truly choose freedom, but stand in wilderness all by yourself mm -hmm. as the last standing voice of mm -hmm. dissent? I mean, it's, I mean, you know, my favorite writer of all time is Dostoevsky, and he's the one who really taught me the impossibility of making the right choice between the two. And I think mm -hmm. what you're saying really resonates closely with that foundational question. I mean, academics, for example, um, mm -hmm. I think we do kind of tend to parade under this like liberal flag. Kind of, I mean, most yeah. of us have no clue about the reality, the no. real situation out there. We're very protected. And most mm -hmm. of us have to be compliant to go through all this tenure mm -hmm. and job security. But we do it yeah. in the name of perhaps supporting others, our children, but mm -hmm. we do know deep down that there is this gulf that cannot be bridged at all, which is mm -hmm. kind of providing the terrain of freedom and happiness. Right. Yeah. And it's really um, up to the individual. And, you know, sometimes people, well, that's a selfish way to think and exist. I'm like, of course, I have to be. I'm responsible for my feelings and my thoughts. You know, I have to take care of myself. To only acknowledge the uh, the resistance that is up against me and the blockages and my marginality, all these limits, to only see that and live in that is hell. It's hell. It's no way to live. Doesn't mean that those realities are not true. Yeah, they're there, but I'm not gonna live in just utter depression and 
constant state of grievance at all times. It's just no way to live. And I have methods of coping and figuring it out. Each time a, a difficult emotion or thought comes to me, I'm just like, this is just a problem I solve. And, there's a, and there is an answer to it. And I, and I exist that way moment by moment nowadays, you know? Mm -hmm. And thank goodness I have the, these tools. Because mm -hmm. imagine if I didn't, mm -hmm. you know? Like, it's October, three months, no employment. I mean, come on. UCLA did offer me something, and I'm like, this is the bullshittiest like offer ever. I'm like, you basically want me to work for free? No, I'm not gonna do it. You know, yeah. it does take courage to to be a dissenter. You yeah. know, it does take yeah. a lot to say no to stuff. You know, for yeah. instance, like in the show, you know, when Ali, such an important character, right? Like, you know, this guy, um, where, where is he from? Pakistan? Is no, he Sri Lankan? He's from, from he's Indian. Oh, in the so drama, he's from Pakistan, but he's an actor from India. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so yeah. he represents a Pakistani uh, migrant worker, and he's there, and everybody's working, right? And he goes to the office and says, give me my, like, back payments and give, like, you know, I want to go. Give me my money so I can go. And the guy's like, look at everybody working. You're the only one that's causing trouble, mm -hmm. right? Imagine if everybody had left, you know? Imagine if everybody had said no and gone. Imagine if every single adjunct professor said, no, I'm not doing it, bye, right? Imagine if every single professor said, no, I'm, you think arts and humanities uh, education is bullshit? Okay, let us just walk out, see what happens, right? And then what has happened? Like, you know, like these movements happen, you know, people protest on the street, people die from the protests, like there is agony, there is this feeling of uh, suffering, the only people who are equipped to address that and talk about it and have the language to do so are people who are trained in arts and humanities profession. The people who are completely neglected because STEM takes all the money, you know? I was telling uh, other professors this, but I saw the funding for STEM students for postdocs. It was $200,000 starting salary, first year after they're graduated. And That's for- That's what I will make ever in my life. <laughs> For postdoc, a recent graduate, wow. okay? Now, for yeah. uh, for arts and humanities scholars, it was at a Rome, some kind of, like, thing. $20,000. No right. board, no room, no health insurance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that is society placing value on individuals based on what they think is valuable, right? So it's like... We got to redefine what value is. Like, it goes back to the question you asked. How do you define what is popular, but apart from m numbers? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm speechless. This, um, you know, one of the uh, worst experiences that you can have as a professor is, um, you know, we recruit and train students because we treasure their views. We value what they have to say. And after, you know, kind of spending the golden age of your youth, your life, um, when people are faced with such like degree of desperation only and no kind of vision of moving forward in any meaningful way, that is really heartbreaking. Um, yeah, so those are some of the uh, toughest moments that I face at, um, you know, somebody working in academia. It's, it's tough. Some days I just lose faith and they're many moments where I just want to stop recruiting because what are we doing? 
yeah. yeah but uh the thing is right like it's not a linear path you know like you you know this because of the work you've done because of your training and because of the things you've studied and things you've analyzed um there's no linear path to anything linear the belief of linear path to something is what stem people do that's how they think you know they think everything's linear like I was talking to a f- He's, he gave up his PhD, but he was like maybe four years into his PhD in physics. And he's a friend of mine. And like, we talk about stuff. And uh, I was like talking about like, I don't know, this might get goofy, but just bear with me. I was talking about like aliens and stuff. And he was like, I don't believe in them. I was like, well, you didn't take psychedelic drugs, so you don't get a say in it. And he was <laughs> like, I need to see evidence with my eyes. I was like, what makes you think your eyes are so truthful and convincing and hardcore evidence what makes you think that your eyes are so trustworthy it's because scientists think in that linear way and i don't you know for me it's not one door it's not tenure track that's not it for me there are so many doors that i can turn to and open and all of them are valid paths paths that'll still get me to the point i'm trying to get to we need to indicate that to students when they feel that anxiety and gripping fear, which is what I think neoliberal economies keep telling us. There's just one way. Oh my God, you have so much debt. You have to, you have to do this job. Oh my, he's, he's an asshole. Yeah, I know your boss is an asshole, but just bear with it. it trust me, it's going to be okay. You know, but I've met students at UCLA too, who do the same thing. They were working as a PD at um, SBS and she said she was getting sexually assaulted every single day. And she was a junior PD, meaning she would have had job security at SBS till the day she dies. And her dad, oh. her own father, was like, don't quit this job. All of her sunbeds were like, don't quit this job. You trust me, you don't want to give up this job. It's a really good one. And she's like, I'm getting sexually assaulted every single day. They're like, no, nah, trust me, you'll get over it. And she said, I quit that job because I did not want to make that my norm. And I was like, you were so brave to me. Because that's her saying no to that illusion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the cost we pay to get what we think we want is just enormous. Um, and I mean, going back to Squid Game, I mean, they literally show you that people die when you don't play by the rules. Uh-huh. But we also die small deaths that way. Um, All the time. Yeah, we give in, we give up, and incrementally, that adds up to death uh, in many ways. And I was just wondering, Grace, so what, what, what would you like to do with your life with yourself and the knowledge that you have the experience you have i mean what is what is is it goal or is it the process that you are looking into i mean i'm already kind of doing it every single day so i'm Mm -hmm. a stand-up comedian so i do stand up every single night Mm -hmm. and um that gets me travel like i get some travel time with that um i still attend conferences um and uh i like the fact that i got a PhD and you know I, I do love knowledge so I'm glad I did it did that work but um, you know if I don't end up in a tenure track situation I'm okay with it I mean I'm also a filmmaker I made a film that's currently awaiting pending festival acceptances but you know I have several film projects that are like kind of in the queue that I'm working on and uh, I'm working on 
my doctoral dissertation as a first book, of course, I'm working on that, but that's more third tier priority. My first tier book priority is uh, the K-drama school book. So this yeah. is this is my logic. I, mean, I want to hear what you think. So I'm like, I have a PhD in cinema media studies, right? So I get to right. say what I want, right? Right? Uh, <laughs> well, nobody knows it like you do. I mean, you have- I, I, get, I get to say it. I get to say yeah. it, right? I mean, this reminds me of um, the, the dream project I had. I, I, I always wanted to write a book called Ajumma School Drama because I think your perspective of Do it. developing this uh, attachment to dramas changes. It intensifies. You somehow find yes. empowering voice when you watch those dramas. Yes, it does. So, yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. It will be really different from um, academic books, but, you know, it's like, Fun project. That's kind of percolating. <laughs> Please do it. Please do it. I mean, and already I could see like how affect theory would be like a huge, you know, like fuel, a driving fuel under that thing. But like for mainstream readers, you know, that's what I want yeah. this book to be. Like right, right. anybody at KCON, any like, you know, teenager or 20 something or 30 something, just grab it and flip through it and be like, oh, this is cool. This is an insight. I didn't mm -hmm. know about this. So it's got some historical uh, foundation and it's got a lot of textual analysis mm -hmm. it's got my own analysis like on industry and what's happening but right. but the question that I don't want to deal with at all in this book is why is Korean drama so appealing to international audiences mm -hmm. like right before I came to meet with you here I had a zoom meeting with some journalist in Canada who literally asked me that question and I was like that is such an I didn't say this to him, but I was just like, this is the most boring question. Also, yeah. it's been asked so many times, like there's so many books written on it. There's already a bunch of conferences on it. Just, it just told me he didn't do his research, you know? And I'm well, like- yeah. they, they don't have time to do any research and it, it, they're moving at such a quick speed that they kind of get your sound right and move on to the next one. And also, you know, think about that question. I mean, it's the, the underlying kind of assumption is that how could, you know, like these Asian small mm -hmm. country produce something that's a mega hit globally? So why? I mean, are you sad that it's exactly. not Hollywood production? So, exactly. I mean, the, the, the table has turned around so much with yeah. already, like, you yeah. know, a decade ago. Um, yeah. Look where things are happening globally. Yes. Look, look, where yes. is it happening? And why do you ask that question if you why? have some degree of awareness of they what don't understand. They don't understand yeah. what a white centric, Americentric, you know, Absolutely. quote unquote, first world centric question that is. He's like, how, why is it so appealing to English speakers? I'm like, why are you asking that question? You racist, you know, and the journalist black, he's black. That was the more disappointing thing. I'm like, you don't understand. You don't mm. see what I'm seeing right now, you know? So like, thank God I'm not a journalist and thank goodness I have a PhD, you know, because like we can see, we could see those barriers and, and those things. But um, yeah, like you, you put it beautifully. Like I, I have nothing more to add to that, but um, yeah, like it's just good content is good content. Like look at, you know, Italian neorealist cinema, right? Like that travels all over the world all the time and people still watch Fellini. Why? Because it's good. It's good. And good stuff is going to find audiences no matter what. People don't, I think the mentality, the thinking is there's a formula. Again, this is a linear way of thinking that STEM people do. There's a formula to this. There's a formula to hits. I'm like, there is no fucking formula. All it comes from is just the motivation the person who who's making good art, you know, they put their time, blood and sweat and thought into it and make it tight, make it good. And 
and the opportunity comes, and it happens. One thing that people don't know is how saturated Korean entertainment market is mm-hmm. with enormous yes. talents. I mean, the competition mm-hmm. is fierce, and I think one mm-hmm. of the things that make it so good is like Korean audience members are just the toughest critics, right? Oh my God. You mess up a little bit, you're going to hear about it right in yeah. your face, and it's partly yeah. due to all these like internet culture, people chat, mm-hmm. they share instantaneously yep. what they like, yep. what they don't like. So if you want to please those tough critics, you better be really good, right? So <laughs> there's a big saturation of talent and they're all good. And only like really competitive structure makes the top tier rise to what we see and what we hear. So, right. I mean, they don't know how tough it is to be there. And I don't think I'm just saying this as a bragging kind of point. No, It's also speaking to this human condition that we often don't see we're seeing the packaged, you know, fancy product that's pleasing, but what bloody, you know, competition, what tears and sweat go behind the yeah. scenes? It's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like when, when Hwang Dong-yuk said he lost six teeth, I was like, you didn't have to lose six teeth, man. You didn't have to. Like, you could have done something to avoid that. But he, like, for him, it's like, he wouldn't dare. Like, he's gotta, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, my real standing ovation here goes to, of course, Hwang dong but I love the set design. I mean, the oh visual storytelling is amazing. I mean, how do you create a scale of believability in this kind of children's fairy tale meets slaughterhouse scenario? So, like, so impressive. Even that, that doll, the Mugungak, which appeals to me, yeah. that, that little girl doll, that robot doll, like, it is such an iconic, like, thing now, you know? Yeah. Um and all those little games, like the bookie thing, you know, like, and the, like the, the marbles and, you know, all of it. It's, I mean, that's got that, you know, kind of indigenous Korean traditional cultural play at work, right? That he yeah. integrates in there in such a sadistic fashion. That's just like really marvelous. Well, my yeah. favorite set was when they were playing marble games, you know, all these like kind of recreation yeah. of this like old street back to it's yeah, just the really bright and the yeah. the background, the uh, sunset skyline is like so fake, immediately yeah. contradicting the reality of those street scenes, and yeah. it's so grotesque and beautiful. It's really it is. Um, it is. I, I really it love is. that. Scene. I mean, it's really wow. beautiful. Yeah, and like there was so many things that happened in that in that particular game. It's like these you know, they're, they're partners and they have to, right? It's heartbreaking. And it's literally showing what like the edges that you get pushed to in these kinds of societies that we live. We do this daily. We backstab our favorite colleague at work, you know, give them up. We do it all the time, you know, and we're, we feel like we're pressured to do it because only one can stand. You know? I know, I know, and that that's why the, the the triangle is such a prominent symbol. It really reminded me of uh, Produce One Hundred One, that idol, you know, <laughs> recruiting yeah. survival show. Yes. I mean, remember the pyramid, right? Yes. That, I mean, even in their choreography, and yes. my God, I mean, for Korean viewers, that's like right back to the fierce competition that melts people alive in in, yes. in this entertainment industry. Yes. But, you know, I've been saying this daily. I've been saying this daily. I've been saying this at comedy shows a lot, too. Any job we accept is a pyramid scheme. 
Yeah. Any job, every single job we ever work is a pyramid scheme. We're making money for whoever's above us, and we're getting shit on. It's always the case, you know. And that's where the triangle also comes in too. Oh yeah. That's how it is. Ah,、uh, the I mean, I think you know, there's like a lot of resonance with the parasite, where stairs become such an important.、Um, oh my god! Yeah, visual storytelling, right? I mean, the、mm-hmm. the, the desire for mobility,、um, mm-hmm. and infinite, you know, kind of bottom that you can fall into at a moment's second. I mean,、abyss. and and to find comfort there, absolutely, to find resignation there. You know,、yeah. I I、right. said this in the、um, Bechtel cast podcast, but、mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you know the classic Yi Sang's Nalge, right? He's that guy in the basement. He says,、yeah. "I feel totally comfortable here. I'm a slave to my wife. She can do what she wants. She feeds me twice a day. I'm good." Right. That's happiness over freedom. <laughs> huh?、What's、That's that? happiness over freedom. <laughs> Yeah. The dichotomy of choices. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Just be, it's、yeah. just like a mental thing. Yeah. But、mm-hmm. I mean, but also with that, it's like, look at the the mise en scene. It's dark. You know, he's dirty. Like he, he he's saying he's happy or he's comforted, but is he really? He's living in the darkness, in darkness where there's no light and there's no other living things. Like there's no joy there. You know, that's another illusion. There, there are layers of realities, and there are.、Uh, you really have to find the actual real freedom. You know, I think that takes work to do. Yeah. You know,、uh, reminds me of drug addicts in a way. I, I mean, going back to you know, going back to that episode six where there's this pair work where you know people have this like false illusion that this is going to be a team play again. So they find their favorite、yeah. friends, people that they can partner up with in a constructive、yeah. way. Because I mean, the the you know dramatic arc leads us to that point because the previous game was a team, right?、Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it was. Effort, so we're naturally kind of subscribing to that logic, and it, it betrays you right there, you know, most harrowing、right、way.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's my favorite episode. I think it's like、yeah. the set is exquisite. That、it's、kind、so、of cruelty of having、the、to kill your sibling brother is just or father figure is.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the most、yeah. revealing kind of reversal of characters, the sadism、yeah. behind it, right? And、yeah. um, I, I was also kind of really heartbroken with the the two women, right? Like they、oh、get paired、God. up, you know.、Yeah. One's North Korean; she has a younger brother, and she feels like she has a purpose to、mm-hmm. to help her brother. But the other one, who she's been molested by her father, she had terrible. She had a terrible life.、Uh, she just feels like she has nothing to live for, you、yeah. know. And I was just like, "Wow!" I mean, she's come this far, and now、yeah. she's this realization is settling in.、Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, I think that death of that、um, Jiyoung,、um, the South Korean girl.、Um, I, I think that's like the. I mean, you can't say this, but that's like the most meaningful death in the whole drama, right? She、mm-hmm. had a purpose with her death. I mean. Because、mm. she really saw the the why she had to go over the other uh you know uh, North Korean um resettler. I think her、yeah. uh, it, it just makes her life almost well lived, which is very paradoxical. Because as you said, her life was horrible with her priest、yeah. father, you know, being、yeah. the biggest hypocrite, the most violent person、yeah. to even kill her mother, right? Yeah. 
So I, I think that that death is also a really good moment of reversal of kind of turning her life into almost well-lived life because she died well in a way. She died with martyrdom. Kind of. And I think that's like really heartbreaking. I love the fact that it was actually friendship between girls, not just like typical you know, boy girl kind of bloody romance, which would have been a cliche. And I thought that was a very good choice of kind of pairing up, you know, these two girls of same similar age. Yeah. And as much beauty and meaning I found between them, I was also kind of annoyed. And I was like, this is why more women need to be hired as writers, because men are so fucking misogynistic. It's such a like, um, again, because of the martyrdom aspect, right? It's like this girl, the North Korean, she has a younger brother to take care of, right? It's like the onus of taking care of caretaking. It falls on the woman. And this girl's like, well, I don't have anybody to take care of, so I can just die, you know? Hmm. It's like, we could have given her another thinking, you know? It's like, no, you had a real shitty life. I mean, you were, you had a terrible life. Let's say you win this money and you go out. You can live a better life, you know? I mean, you, you can choose to do that. But instead, hmm. she was like, well, I don't have anything to live for because I don't have a younger brother. I don't have family, okay? Hmm. And that's when I got irritated. I was like... Again, oh, with the family thing, you know, yeah, like my hardcore Korean feminist was like, no, nah, fuck that shit. Because <laughs> why can't why can't a woman seriously, why can't a woman ever just be single, not yeah. coupled up with somebody or not want to have a child? Why can't sh she just be herself? Hmm. You know, they Koreans just never let that happen. Even in Hollywood, they barely make that happen. I'm always on the search for where, when and where am I going to see a female protagonist who is not looking for love or trying to have a baby? Where and when? Because there are so many male protagonists who just get that. They're given that all the time and they're heroes. And I'm just like, where am I? I'm not interested in either of those things. Where am I? You know? And, you know, that annoyed me. Like the female characters on this show, they were underdeveloped, in my opinion. They were very grossly wow. underdeveloped yeah this is where we depart because i love that uh north korean character i mean she's sure something love, special I yeah, yeah I, I love not only yeah. her kind of like kind of you know the rough kind of quality that comes with a new kind of actor but i like her character as well because i mean she i, I love the fact that she is so full of willpower to change the course of our life um mm -hmm. uh, the fact that she is actually feeling the responsibility of taking care of a younger brother didn't bother me so much. Um, mm. Yeah, the, I didn't think about the family aspect so much, but I mm -hmm. love the fact that she is such a driven character. She's go-getter. Yeah. She will do anything to make it happen. Yep, unapologetic. Yeah. Yeah, yes, unapologetic is really good. And mm -hmm. I love mm -hmm. that quality about that character in a way. But family is a good point. Yeah, I mean, remember the pair that episode six is particularly cruel. You remember that husband and wife, Terry? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the irony of it, right? Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of family tropes that uh, figure into this particular tragedy in a way. But, yeah. um, and it's so ironic that it's the husband who survives, right? <laughs> and is like bothered by guilt. And you know how that uh, Seoul National University Sangmundong's like genius characters are like yeah if you're so guilty like why did you live why didn't you let right. your wife 
yeah. it was like true cruel but true um but you know it's like in a situation like that none of those questions or accusations or blame matter you know what mm-hmm. i mean they're just pointless right like that Sangmundong guy was also that the whole national guy was also really really interesting like he was the one that was supposed to make it he was the one that had it all he went to Seoul National he had a corporate job how did it go get so ugly so fast and then that made me think about intergenerational wealth he came from a small bumfuck town small neighborhood mother who's a nobody you know doesn't have a father doesn't have connections intergenerational wealth means everything you know, you can do all the right things. Grace Jung can do all the right things. She got a Fulbright. She got a PhD. She did all the right things. She's on food stamps and on unemployment. You know what I'm saying? Don't be it's so like hard, that right? network means so much. No, but but that is, I do think that's what he was symbolic of. Mm. Is like he lacked the network. If you're not of, the, like that's how the elite think. If you're not of us, you can come and play around us. But you're not of us. You're not of our pedigree, and there's no way you're gonna come up here. And what is and what what drove him was the greed, right? The greed mm-hmm. got him into all those scams. Why he wanted to be up there, be part of the elite. Yeah, this uh, intergenerational thing is interesting because I mean, if you look at who's filthy rich of all Koreans, there uh, it's the the show's host, Oh Il Nam, mm-hmm. right? That, that grandpa. I, I somehow knew that he was the mastermind of uh, the whole thing. Oh. He was like smiling. And I told my nice. husband, he's a mastermind. He's like, no. I was like, see? Oh. I've watched enough drama to get it. But you know no, it. You can also, sense it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the smile was like so creepy that I knew something oh, was yeah. up with him. And he's not an Sinister. ordinary uh, yeah, Sinister guy. guy mm-hmm. He appears to be. But anyway, this intergenerational wealth is interesting because, I mean, look at the younger generation today. Most of them do not have better opportunities than their parents' generation. You know, hmm. we, they don't have same degree of opportunity or resource to succeed hmm. compared to their parents' generation. And this is probably the first time in modern history when this kind of reversal of fortune took place. Because hmm. our myth of progress is that with every generation, things will get better. You know, my children right. will have better life than me. Sure. But that Oilam uh, grandpa is a self-made man. If you think yeah. about it, right? I mean. Yes. He lived in this very humble, you know, mm-hmm. uh, neighborhood. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. He's from Sunim. Mm-hmm. He was Sunim, definitely. Mm-hmm. Ordinary person yep. and they to, I don't know what he did, perhaps something yep. shady. We'll never know. Maybe mm-hmm. he made oil because the name is Oil Nam. <laughs> but, sure, maybe. That's interesting. Yeah. But you see, I think that's also a kind of social commentary that resonates well with um, what we see in our reality. Hmm. Which is- you think. You think that uh, current generation has uh, disadvantages? I do. I do. In I what do. way? Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I have lots of anecdotal evidence of um, how this is really uh, based on reality that I see. Like, for example, my mother, I mean, so can I start with anecdotal evidence and maybe spare the lecture for later? My mother-in-law, for example, was a single mom. I mean, she was a sport counselor, so she had single, you know, income, a very modest job. She was able to send her kids to two, two kids to college and still afford a house with her salary. It was all doable with honest income, right? Uh, can we do that today? If you are a single mom with two kids, can you send your kids to college and afford your mortgage? Um, so this is like very 
tangible evidence that I see. And this is not a single isolated exception. I mean, there are a lot of stories like that. Um, when it comes to Korea, I think it's also the kind of right? established generation kind of being very oppressive and this like popular trending word, latte and Maria, right? Latte is horse, if you heard about this. It's their mentality. Oh, I did this when I was young. Like, why can't you make it? I mean, Korea was in a very different place. It was an expanding post-war economy where everything was like experiencing a golden boom, whereas right now wealth is not shared that way anymore, you know? We cannot tell our students to say they work hard and things will happen. I can't say that anymore. Yeah, it's not the truth. In fact, no. work less. Work less. Save your energy and save your uh, spirit. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, there's a sociologist. Uh, I forget his name right now, but he wrote a book called, like, Why Are White Men Angry? <laughs> oh, and yeah. You know I, this book, yes? Uh, yes, yes, yes. But yes. he was talking about what you were just talking about, how mm -hmm. back in the day you could work and make enough money to buy a house because you know it, it made sense economically like minimum wage made sense and blah 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 today the minimum wage doesn't make any sense in terms of how things are price pointed at no yeah i mean this has a lot to do with shift towards more liberal economy where workforce doesn't have guarantee of stability healthcare, social welfare anymore it's all disposable clinic citizens where you use this very young underpaid people once twice and throw them away supply them with new workforce. There's no infrastructure to build on long-term plans, security, mm -hmm. and so on. It's, it's that structural shift that we have gone through. Yeah. And this is the, this is the failure of capitalism. <laughs> the thing that nobody wants to criticize, the thing that nobody wants to admit. But this is the failure of capitalism. There's a huge gap, a huge hole in it, you know? And uh, how do there's I don't know what the answer is to patching it up. You know, a lot of economists don't even know. They just observe. They don't have any answers. But yeah, that's a good point. What you're saying is it, it resonates with me very much. Well, what did you think of the ending when uh, <laughs> when Lee Jung Jae <laughs> is all broken and dejected and he's not using his money and he's still living this kind of like, you know, like a homeless man's existence. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, kind of logical. Um, it's, it's a very logical choice he would make, right? Because, I mean, all the two finalists, you know, they have very different worldview. I mean, some of the Seoul National uh, University characters that I came this far because I'm smart, you know, I, I put in intelligence to get this far, whereas, uh, you know, Ki-Hoon, the, the, the loser guy, knows that the his finalist status is built on so many people's dead bodies. He literally thinks mm. that. So I think those two finalists have very different outlook on how far they came. Mm -hmm. So I think that Lee Jong-dae, uh, character knows that every single bill, money bill that he's going to spend is somebody's blood, somebody's mm -hmm. life. I think he's mm -hmm. like viscerally aware of it. And to be yeah. faced with his own mom's death mm. when he came back with money, the whole purpose yeah. of participating in it I mean, of course, together with uh, kind of securing parental rights for um, the daughter. Right. Too. But oh I think finally, the mom died. So his whole yeah. purpose of needing that money disappears. So I think it, it was a very logical um, thing. But uh, again, the, the, the 
director doesn't really leave things as this great tragedy. I mean, that, that comical moment of when he goes to the headquarters at the bank and says, oh, Madame <laughs> Bidia just did and what does the bank guy say he says yes of course, of course because people with money will always be given more money right and uh oh my oh. god the title of that episode was which is that short story okay. right where yes. this guy just goes through hell to make money and bring home the millet that his wife wanted and he gets home and she's dead right? it's like such a great literary kind of usage you know to again indicate to korean viewers like you know this it's not new in present modern day it's been going on for like a century it's always been the case right like but that uh, uh, title was a spoiler. I mean, it just tells you how it will end, right? Yeah, like, you yeah. just see it. You yeah. see, she's going to be dead. Of course she's going to be dead. And, yeah. you know, uh, in episode two, remember when he gets dropped off? Like, he and that, the the Somechigi girl, they get dropped off, and they're all tied up. And, you know, he, she's like, why should I untie you? And he says, I, I, won't, I won't ask you for money. I won't. I won't. And she's like, how do I know this? And she's like, I swear on my mother's life. <laughs> Uh, oh yeah! Oh wow! He says, "I swear on my mother's oh, life." And then she unties him, and she and she goes, <laughs> and he tries to beat her, and she goes, "I feel really bad for your mother." You know? Uh, oh, that's and really again, good. Yeah. Yeah, he says, "I feel bad for your mother," <laughs> and she's that symbol of the daughter. I mean, the sister who's never gonna give up on family. Like she's okay. like willing to go the extra mile for her younger brother. Um, and t for her, it's like her word is her bond. Like she will do it. Whereas this guy, he's just like, I don't care. I don't care. You know, yeah, I'll just yeah. do whatever I need to do. But yeah, what a great show. I mean, you know, it's got so many, so many layers to it. And we could talk about it endlessly. But um, this was really great. Thank you so much for making time. It's good to see you. I mean, because of the pandemic, I really didn't have any chance to say goodbye to recent PhD, which is quite sad and anticlimactic yeah. it's so much work getting your degree and I, I just feel like it's very anticlimactic so this was sort of a makeup for that yeah no thank you for making the time and yeah like um it it is a lot of work but I think as long as you feel joy and some passion mm -hmm. in it like it's just mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like work at all it's an absolute pleasure right and okay. honestly writing my dissertation was an absolute pleasure and um, I was like thinking about this yesterday. I was like, I had a really great committee. You know, I was like proud of my committee members. You know, I was like Chon Noriega and you and Jasmine Trice and Caldwell. I was like, this is like an excellent committee. You know, <laughs> like I am in really good hands. So it was so fun reading it. And I'm just impressed by how much good work went in in such a short period of writing time. It's very impressive. I think you have a knack for writing. Keep up the good work and live your dream life. Um, I'm not going to say any false, you know, words of hope, but I do think that there's tremendous joy in pursuing what you like despite all the struggles. So never forget I about that. Yeah. I agree. By the way, I'm citing your dissertation in my uh, North Korea book. It's, uh, oh, you have another North Korea book? Oh, it's been in the making, but it's uh, kind of in a stall because I have to do more interviews. But, um, you know, Yemen is really popular in North Korea. So I do cite your book 
I mean, your dissertation that will be a book. <laughs> I'll bet. Actually, as soon as you said Yenung, I just realized. Oh my gosh! I just realized a Squid Game is all Yenung. Yeah. If you think about it, that's <laughs> strange show format. Yeah, yeah. It's all Yenung. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Oh my god! And you know, because you know how like on like Muan Dojun when they're like fighting each other for one banana, you know, <laughs> like they go, they kill each other for one banana. Same thing. Same like this audition show is also uh, very resonating with uh, Squid Game, you know, like Kobe One One and yes, kind of like you know, hidden singers, like all the mask, right? Competition, gamification, yeah, the 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 secrecy, right? The the right. building tension, yeah. yeah. Of course, this show's gonna be a hit. It's got all the elements of good television, you know. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so I do hope that you know. You know, Netflix and K drama will have good marriage because all these like pre-production that allows for that kind of detail, you know, it's possible because they're not using Jokdaebon, they're not shooting like live shows that'll air tonight. So not anymore. Uh, yeah, not as far as they get fair pay and good working condition, it could be a marriage that could be really good. South Korea really needs to unionize. They yeah. have to unionize, and they're not unionizing. They have to unionize when it comes to cast and crew, actors, musicians. They all need to unionize, like they did in Hollywood. They have to do it; otherwise, they're not going to be protected. And yeah. South Korea also needs to be aware that Netflix is a media conglomerate. They are Disney, except streamers. They're ruthless. They don't care. They don't care about anything except money. They have to realize this. Like I saw a Hangyeol article. This is really sad. A Hangyeol article where a VP in Netflix, Netflix VP, he was like, "South Korea got sixteen thousand new jobs thanks to Netflix. We made a billion dollar, like five billion dollars, and our economy is stimulated thanks to Netflix." I was like, "Maybe, maybe, maybe Netflix should thank South Korea for their content and how cheap they got everything. Maybe." Like you know? Squid Game is the most viewed show in Netflix's history of streaming, and Netflix wouldn't have had that if it wasn't for Squid Game and Hwang Dong Yeok losing six teeth. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the whole so, nine episode cost like one episode production cost of the Crown. It's pretty much equivalent. Like imagine that. So yeah, yeah, there's yeah. that cheap Asian labor who do like five times more job than white people. So there you yeah. go. Yeah, you get a lot of faculty too. So you'll see, like you know, if yeah. you look like you or me, you're expected yeah. to work twice, and you still get this like very condescending view that you're not good enough. I get that mm. every day. I'll bet. I'll bet. I mean, I'm already, you know, I already get that, you know, like being a stand-up comedian and how devalued I am compared to very mediocre, if not unfunny, white guys all the time. You know, I see it all the time. Like, and you know, I don't know if you've ever dealt with this. But like I know you also like studied like Russian, uh, like Russian performance art and like you know, um, like Eastern European like art and stuff. Uh, like you have this other wealth of knowledge and passion for those things, but people keep expecting Korea out of you, right? Absolutely. Like, and how do you like keep the frustration of that at bay? I don't know. If if at all, yeah. like I mean, I've come to love it because there's. I mean, I I've just kind of become patriot at this point because <laughs> so much has to be said about Korea that people have are not aware of or 
having misconception. I know I'm just like yeah, casting yeah. myself here, but it is frustrating. I mean, I was never really taken seriously by uh, people in Slavic field because mm. just because I'm not one of them, and okay. there's like very long-standing um, academic stereotype, you know, casting going okay. on. I right. could have not gotten a job in Slavic department, but you know, I got hired right away in Korean studies because back then wow. the job market wasn't as dire as today. Right. Uh, right. I think it's also a lot with generation. Certain generations have really hard times, such as now. Yeah. And all that. Some sometimes, you know, field is expanding and there are more opportunities. So uh yeah. So my path uh traveling for academia as Korean studies scholar was very smooth and easy because there's a lot of this Typecasting. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I I have your first book on North Korea, and I think it's really fascinating, and the work that you did is like incredible, and I even love how personal you got with it, saying like what it felt like to be in the presence of other North Korean students and those feelings yeah, that came up for you, that. and I was just like, all of this is so mesmerizing. So I love how personal that that book is, and I'm really looking forward to your second North Korea project. I'm sure it'll be just as Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Grace. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Did I ever tell you I, I broke a guy's mattress? Um, How? How do you break a mattress? By. Uh, With your big ass. That's how. You're fucking gigantic. No. I, I was standing on his bed. <laughs> we never, like, we didn't have sex. I just stood on his bed and, like, it went, like, boom, and, like, my my foot went like through the mattress and I felt so bad, but like <laughs> we didn't have sex, but it, it was, it was still sort of like a, it was like a, it was like a, a, a hookup situation sort of, um, but it never came to bed. it. Yeah. Because you broke so his I fucking mattress. I felt really bad. I broke his mattress and then I never saw him again. <laughs> and I, yeah, it was, I was on vacation. So yeah. Oh my God, you idiot! Why were you standing on his bed? That's weird. That's a weird. I don't know. You never stand. stand on a bed. I don't know. If it's a bouncy bed, you you know, you, it's fun. So you were jumping on his bed. Is this different? No. It's different from standing. How dare you? I was not jumping on it. Okay. Maybe I was exerting some force with my. You foot were jumping onto the on bed. his bed and you broke his mattress. You're such an asshole. Who jumps on a bed? You're not on a stranger's bed. Oh my True. god, that is so <laughs> unacceptable. I'm so sorry if he's listening to this. <laughs> I apologize. Wait. So okay, you've been. I. I'm very surprised. Like you're not somebody who watches Korean dramas, and here you are. You watched all of Squid Game. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I heard it was it was supposed to be good, and then I started, and it was good. And I was on vacation. Um, yeah. So I had. I mean, I was. I was. Uh, you know, what else am I going to do? Yeah. Go to the beach. No. And you know, you're so. go to the beach. You're you're somebody who I mean, this isn't exactly like your cup of tea kind of genre, you know, like you watch fucking Golden Girls every fucking night, you know. But I also watch a lot of like crime shows. Oh, you do. OK. Yeah. Like, like were you into Hunger Games crime and stuff? shows? Were you into Hunger Games? I was into, or... yes, Hunger Games. Game of I Thrones. Like... No, okay. never watched it. I never watched yeah. Thrones either. Um, but, I, okay. I, I, I just, I gave up after one episode. Which, Me too. I couldn't yeah. get through the first episode. I was like, this is so boring and stupid. I'm over I know. it. 
I couldn't. I, I tried. I tried. I tried my best. I tried like for three months yeah. straight. And I was like, you know what, Grace, this is too much. This is like an abusive relationship. You don't need to do yeah. this. You know? Yeah. Um, no. Okay. So you, okay. So you yeah. got into this show. Um, yes. What was it about this show that appealed to you? Like what, what was sort of your, like what was engaging you about this show? I mean, I think f- for one, it's it's like the uh, the cinematography is beautiful, oh, like yeah. the colors and the whole setup and the very mm-hmm. kind of orchestrated yeah. um, camera shots okay. that are yeah, those are great to watch. And then I I just enjoy I enjoy a mystery. I like I mean yeah. I everything I read is like a, a stupid dumb mystery or crime novel. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So the yeah just like trying to figure out what's going on who's who's running this operation what's what's happening yeah um what's their motive that's what got me into it exactly okay yeah and and the characters uh especially the crazy crazy curly haired lady (laughs) the borderline personality yeah yes what an icon (laughs) wow that woman she yeah she was something else Mm. yeah what did you like about her she's 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 very she's camp i mean yeah, <laughs> yeah. she's so a sad I think camp she, it's kind of like she's devastating. A sad it's camp like... but she is a gay icon i believe that's the <laughs> she, she's camp enough to be a gay icon um that's yeah. why i enjoyed her yeah. yeah she was a really complicated character for me because i was like i mean i understand what she's doing like what she's doing is actually no different from what everybody else is doing. Like she's just trying to survive. She's just trying to live. Mm. Yeah. And uh, what was interesting is how South Korean viewers, the South Korean audience called the showrunner, Hwang Dong-yuk, a misogynist for her character specifically. They were like, she went and had sex with this guy so that she could live. And I'm like, what is with you, South Korea? Why are you guys so fucking uptight that you think having sex is suddenly like this immoral thing in order to live when everybody's done something shitty in order to survive? Like every single person mm. did. It's like the reception yeah. and that mentality is misogynistic. It's not the actual uh, character and her choices, you know? Yeah, yeah. Very and bizarre. it's also... I mean, it's it's it it's not it's not that doesn't make the show or the character sexist. Even if you do believe that using yeah. using sex for to to gain an advantage is a bad thing. Yeah. It's it. I mean, what does it say about society in general that a woman has to right. be in that position? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, the fact yeah. that you know society has considered the vagina a currency, you know, and that prostitution is you know, one of the oldest trades in the capitalist systems mm. that we've been living in and in, in our societies for, you know, centuries. It's like, um, yeah, it, it's more, a t- I think you're right. It's more a testament to that. And um, I didn't find her character misogynistic at all. Uh, maybe in some respects, like, I mean, she was a bit flighty. I was like, whoa, okay. Like she's a lot, but I mean, I also know, I know people like her, you know? Uh yeah. The, the thing I found misogynistic and bothersome was how the female characters all had to have a sense of family as the reasoning to live and get this mm. money. 
like the North Korean girl, she was doing this for her brother. Um, and yeah. then the other girl, the one that ends up giving up during the Marvel games, she's yeah. like, I have nothing to live for. Like, I don't have a family to go and live for. And then she decides oh, to just yeah. be a martyr for this girl so she can go and save her brother. I was just like, how come women always have to sacrifice themselves for family? You know, like. But I mean, the main character's um, motivation was his family too, his his daughter and his That's mother. That's true. Right? They all they were all kind of doing it for their family members. Yeah, but yeah, um, but you know, it's just like it's such a trope in Korean novels and in Korean movies, mm. and especially in novels and movies written and directed by men that I just find it annoying as hell. You know, like, yeah. If you think about it, the old man, for instance like the old the old guy like he wasn't mm-hmm. doing any, any of that shit for his family he was just doing it for himself yeah uh yeah. the gangster guy he wasn't doing it yes. for his family he was doing it for himself like there were yeah. male characters who were doing it for themselves but that yeah, flighty true. woman the curly hair lady like she was she said so she had a baby you know like mm-hmm. other she had a, a brother yeah yeah that's true i mean they yeah it's just but in a way it's also like it's it, it's it's weird that with some of the men, um, it's just assumed that they're they don't need a motivation. They're just doing it for themselves. Uh huh. We didn't really need to explain. No. That it, there wasn't an explanation for it. Yeah. Why are they doing it? It's just part of their nature, kind of. It's yeah. It's like because I'm entitled like, to. Like I'm entitled yeah. to have everything I want. That's why I'm going to go into it. And yeah. I'm like, how come bitches can't do that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want to see more bitches do that. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. all right, let me see. I don't know. Let's try and do this. Like, cause, uh, you're the, you're the second person ever on the podcast to have actually seen the show where I'm going to ask flashcard questions too. The only okay. time I did that was with Dan Telfer when I was asking him flashcard questions about kingdom, but it still kind of mm-hmm. worked with him. So let me ask you, um, mm-hmm. you're, you're the main protagonist and your 10 year old daughter, right? Um, she's living with her stepdad your ex-wife's current husband and uh your mother has diabetes she needs surgery she's about to lose her legs uh you're in this dire desperate strait so you go to your ex-wife you ask for some money she says no but the ex-husband comes running out and hands you an envelope and says here's the money you don't need to pay me back i just don't want you to ever see our daughter again because she's trying to readjust. What do you uh-huh. do? Um, well, first of all, take the money, obviously. <laughs> That's, I mean, I, there's no written contract part of this money handing over situation. It's Who true. says I, I have to do what he wants me to do? It's just cash. Yeah, there you go. Yes. Take the money uh, and then go around his back and meet my daughter anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, presumably she also likes me better than him. It, I don't yeah. know she does maybe hopefully um so yeah who cares um there is no there's no contract i can do whatever i want whatever i want with my money and my daughter wow i mean that sounded bad uh no no i can do whatever (laughs) i want with my money and uh i can see my daughter when i want to yeah okay all right well then let's say um you're that north korean girl all right Mm -hmm. i believe her name was hebyar or it's hebyar it's hebyar it means dawn it's a very pretty name oh yeah so uh you're this north korean chick named and um your parents are 
missing, most likely dead. Okay, because you were mm-hmm. all defectors of North Korea, and it's like trying to migrate from you know South America into the United States. It's very difficult. It's really violent. You know, it's awful. Uh, your parents are most likely dead, but uh, your younger brother, who's at an orphanage, okay. Um, mm-hmm. he's like losing hope. He feels like you're, you've abandoned him. And if he, he feels like you're lying to him about reuniting the family and everything, right? You, you and your heart feel like your parents are dead, but your brother is heartbroken. And you, you say to him, we're gonna, I promise we're all going to reunite. Right. But you don't know if that's true. You don't really know mm-hmm. if that's true. I mean, I mean, what do you do in that situation? I mean, do you just lie to your brother or or do you just say like they're most likely dead? Like, are you honest with him, or are you, you going to try and protect his feelings? What what's priority? How old is the brother again? He looks about eight or nine. Eight. Yeah. Um. Ooh. That's. I mean. That's tough. I feel like eight is. Eight is a weird age i'm just trying to remember like my own childhood <laughs> and what i was like with eight when yeah. i was eight yeah. um i don't know i don't even know if i would have been able to process that yeah. no i mean keep up the lie definitely uh, do you want me to go do you, uh, do you want me to put a damper on the whole thing and yeah. just um because um, my own my own father died when i was 11 mm. and i feel like if i'm just trying to think of myself in that situation hmm. i think you sh- no she gotta wait i have to wait uh before i tell my brother hmm. for like just draw it out okay. wait until he's 12 13 maybe i think hmm. eight is too young to handle that okay. sort of thing especially if you don't know like yeah don't don't um, right. make assumptions on but, uh, don't make make assumptions just yeah. tell your brother yeah Keep up his hopes, yeah, and then wait and see if they're actually dead, and okay. then you can tell them. Tell them. All right. Yeah. Oh, I like that answer. All right. Were you expecting a Were you expecting a funny answer that was very dark? <laughs> no, it's okay. It wasn't that dark. It was just okay, honest and truthful. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Good. No, I I think uh I think that's smart. Yeah. It's like spare him. Like why why put that trauma on a kid who won't be able to handle it? Yeah. I think that's smart. Especially if you don't know. Right. For sure. You're not a hundred percent sure. It's like most likely they're dead, but you're not a hundred percent sure. Okay. Imagine if you tell him and then they turn out not to be dead. <laughs> and then his mom shows up and he thinks his mom's a fucking ghost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or a zombie. Yeah. Um yeah, just wait. <laughs> okay. That should be season two of Squid Game. <laughs> zombie, zombie mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. It's actually a good idea. Yeah, combine Kingdom and Squid Game together and make something. Okay. Oh, is Kingdom about zombies? Yeah, it's about zombies in the Ooh, Chosen Dynasty. Okay. So during the Chosen Dynasty. So it's like a period piece and a zombie thing. And it's a nice. TV show. The, the first season's phenomenal. Season two okay. gets a little wacky. And then the mm-hmm. movie, which is supposed to like be the finale that ends this whole thing, it sucks. Like I couldn't get through it at all. Oh. You know, I was just like, I'm, I'm oh. over it. All okay. right. Okay, then let's get to the ending. Because the ending's weird. You won all this fucking money. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody hands you 
a thing of flowers and a card and then you go and you see this old man who you thought you killed mm-hmm. but he's lying up in bed and he says he's mm-hmm. the orchestrator of this whole fucking insane psychopath game what do you do mm-hmm. you kill him again i mean for <laughs> real this time obviously <laughs> i mean i i since i've seen the show i know how hard it was for him to like kill the man the first time yeah. now do it again you actually get to enjoy it oh yeah <laughs> yeah um and get over your trauma of killing him for the first time um yeah just yeah. get rid of that old hmm. dude okay. bald hairless way too old um <laughs> <laughs> sorry i <laughs> sorry, I, uh, I i may have i may uh prejudice against bald people um yeah get rid of him get rid of him yeah okay let's say uh you're that police officer guy who snuck in and he's doing the whole um Mm. undercover thing okay yes that's who that's my that's my handmaid's tale um crush crush you're into him yes he was pretty fine yeah oh yeah i did not like the bangs they gave him but he's he's a very good looking man (laughs) I'm <laughs> prejudiced against bald people and bangs. <laughs> so it's not a lot of options I have to, I can work with. So if a, <laughs> if a person was completely crazy. shaven and they only oh had bangs. That <laughs> no, that cancels each other out. It's like a double no. And then I'm really into that. <laughs> double negative. <laughs> Equals a yes for you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. at least we know your kink i mean if you ever you know get into a a long-term relationship and you're like i'm a little bored can you shave your head and just save can you do can you become like a monk a monk (laughs) but also get rid of all of this just keep just that part just the front part (laughs) yes oh my god oh shit okay you know um okay so you're this uh undercover cop and you've been looking mm-hmm. for your missing older brother and you went mm-hmm. through all this fucking hell and this the the ultimate enemy the man behind the black mask he reveals himself and it's your fucking older brother who's been missing mm. what do you do um what i do is rewatch the entire show because <laughs> i did not realize that that was his brother until that, like, I, I, I watched the entire show believing yeah. the main character was the cop's brother. I don't oh, know why. Oh my I mean, God. I know. Yeah. I'm it's a big. I, I may have, may or may not have watched one or two episodes, but I was drunk on a lot of red wine okay. uh, and some Rocky because it was in Greece. And oh, um, <laughs> so when he shot him, I didn't realize how dramatic that was. Um, <laughs> But yeah, what what would I do? Yeah, um, I mean, he's been missing. Yeah. He's been missing for two years. Your mother's been on your ass yeah. and telling you find your fucking brother, and you were desperately yeah. looking for your older brother, who's been just yeah. he was just gone off the grid, yeah. and yeah. it's it's this guy. It's this guy who's been the sadistic manager of this entire operation, and he reveals mm. himself and he says, "Here I am. Put down the Here gun." Here I am. It's the me, Mario. Um, I sorry. <laughs> I would. I mean, he should have. I he should have brought his mom. 
to, to that, that island. <laughs> she should have given him a good old fashioned spanking. If she, if his mom's also looking for her other son, just bring her along. Get her in that diving diving suit. <laughs> just get her on that island, and then smack the shit out of his bum. That'll teach him a lesson. <laughs> That'll set him straight. Yeah. Yes. That'll yeah. snap him out of this crazy sadistic game. Snap out of it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That was my okay. share impression, by the way. It's a convincing one. I think um, you should call her up and do it over the phone. <laughs> Let's say um, you're you're this uh, you're the Pakistani migrant worker, Ali. All right. My second crush, by the way. Yes. Oh yeah, he was so good. I loved. I loved yeah. Ali. All right. So yeah. you're you're Ali. You were you were looking to this guy, Sangu, right? The guy he keeps keeps calling boss or older mm-hmm. brother, Hyung. Okay. Mm-hmm. He was like like a like a mentor to you, mm. kind of like a role model to you. He was a kind man. He was generous with you. Gave you bus fare you know, and was yeah. just kind of took you under his wing and he was like really kind to you. And uh, he told you to take your sack of marbles and go walk around this neighborhood area to go and examine and see what's up and then come back and they're going to make a plan, right? Mm-hmm. And you come back and he has all the marbles and in your little sack, a bunch of fucking pebbles. Yeah. And you know you're going to die. What do you do? Yeah. Snatch the marbles from him first. I mean, first option. If that doesn't work, um, um, I don't know. What can you do with the pebbles? You can <laughs> throw pebbles at him. Doesn't probably do a lot of harm. Um, shove the pebbles up his nostrils. Um, just, just do something so you're not just like standing there and like get killed by him or something retaliatory. Yeah, yeah, just do something with the pebbles. I mean, you know you're going to die. Like, he he won yeah. the game. The, the red-suited yeah. guy's going to shoot you now. Yeah, It's over. It's just, you know, you have your final moment. Yeah. Facing death. Mm. And this dawns on you. Like, the guy that you trusted yeah. betrayed you. <sighs> Try to do something with the pebbles. I don't know. It's got to be something. <laughs> That's all you have. Something sadistic with the pebbles. Shove him up his urethra. <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay, just put also tell pebbles him, into his orifice. Okay. All right. Yes. Ear holes. Um, oh my gosh. What just other holes do you have in a body? Yeah. Any hole. hole. Yeah. But eyes are technically yes. holes. Yeah. Yeah. Make, make holes that aren't even there. Just create them. You, do that yeah the pebbles um yeah and then tell him um that he looks much better without glasses and he <laughs> should never put them back on um yeah also took me a long time. i no but it took me a while to realize it was one character and not two different characters because he looks so different with and without glasses yes it was like a like a like a what is what's his face um Clark, yes, yeah. I'm like so easy. Superman I'm, imagine how easy I am to fool by if, yeah by Superman. You yeah, totally, you're, you're one of those. Now citizens. I understand those dumb characters who never yeah they never could people figure, who never it's just a pair of fucking glasses and it's like a mask. And it's like a little like a little hair log, like a little <laughs> one little Jerry curl. 
that's all it takes yeah jesus okay yeah hmm. yeah pebbles all right all right final question you're at the subway you dyed your hair red mm -hmm. for some reason like, i don't know why that was weird like he dyes his hair red you dye your hair purplish red looking like a fucking anime character and mm -hmm. you're on your way to the airport to go and see your daughter in la and at the subway station i don't know why he took the subway he's a fucking multi-millionaire he takes a fucking subway to the airport yeah. it's so bizarre this guy was just so <laughs> all kinds of wacky but at the subway station you see the guy that got you suckered into this whole thing mm -hmm. slapping mm -hmm. another potential victim what do you do mm -hmm. suck suck his dick <laughs> that's my third crush so... oh he was so hot <laughs> yeah oh yes yeah um he's got great hair and oh, as yeah. you know oh yeah hair kind of a thing for me um uh then uh <laughs> give him ten thousand one to slap me again no uh no <laughs> I, I would never um say that in my mom's house um <laughs> um i don't know i he's got he's got 43 it's about 40 million US dollars, right? That's mm -hmm. about the equivalent of it. Yeah. Um, uh, buy him off, Ooh. make him live in your house. Yeah. Just so you can stare at him oh. all day long. He Perfect. can throw those weird cards on the floor and yeah. then you throw your card on top of that, which mm -hmm. is that an actual game, by the way? It is, it's called Dakchi. How do you flip that with by like throwing something else on top of it? It seems it very takes, counterintuitive. It takes so much maneuvering and strength yeah. and agility and focus and accuracy. It's like a skill. Like uh, yeah. a lot of these schoolboys would play it. So like grown men, like my dad, like men, men who are my dad's age, like that's like their childhood thing. And okay. there was always some kid who was really fucking good at that. You know, it's such yeah. a simple game, but once your ego gets involved in it, it's like riled up and they just, yeah. it's like a whole fucking thing. It seems almost impossible to do. It's almost impossible. Yeah. It is almost impossible, but yeah, it's doable. And you got to fold it with like a certain kind of dense paper so that it has weight mm. to it. Yeah. Um, it's a whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but that's what I would do. Buy him off, put him in my house. Um, let me stare at him. Not touch, only stare. Doesn't have no, I don't have to touch, but yeah. um he does Just have to at. keep his hair. He I'm I'm I'll get him some hair gel so he can keep up that do. Um yeah. <laughs> I've never said that dude. I've never used that word to describe someone's hair. I don't know why I did just now. Okay. All right. Very good. Oh, wow. That's a perfect answer. Yeah. All okay. right. Yeah. You agree with me, apparently. Oh, my God. Kung Yu is so hot. The reason yeah. why Kung Yu was in that, in that uh, episode as a cameo is because Kung Yu was in the showrunner's uh, second feature film. In a oh, film okay. called Silence, which is a really mm -hmm. devastating movie. I don't recommend it. It's not at all mm. a cheerful fun film. It's fucked no. up. But uh, yeah, that's why Kung Yu makes that cameo appearance. I see. But very good. Thanks for um, thanks for doing this. Appreciate sure. it. Sure.